Hello, Dr. Chicken Spring. I need an aviation medical. Okay, Mr. Pilot, fill out this form, please. Sure, let's see what we have. Have I ever been dizzy? Nope. Have I ever suffered from anxiety? No. Have I ever been depressed? No. Divorces and teenage daughter phone calls about car wrecks are fun and happy to me. Let's see, all of these others, no, 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 no. Here you go, doctor. Great, you passed your medical, off you go. Thanks, see you next year. Before we even start, I think it's important to mention that my co-host, Neil, is a pilot. Part of what we're going to talk about are deficiencies at the FAA and in aircraft design, some little technical things that we're going to boil down to layman terms. And I've been flying for about 10 years, but most importantly, I don't have to worry about losing my job for talking bad about somebody at the FAA or an airline. I just do this for fun. So I can talk about medical issues and maintenance issues and design issues without having to worry about losing my job. So that is exactly what we are going to do. Yes. And, you know, I'm so happy and I feel also very lucky to have you as my co-host on this podcast because I'm a regular person and I do not know a lot of stuff about planes. So this is one of those episodes where you're going to play a central role just because you obviously know so much more about all the cases we're going to discuss. Which brings me to this episode where we're going to be talking about the China Easter Airlines crash. Then we're going to go over a brief history of Boeing. And we'll also look at some similar plane crashes based on facts that we know so far from the China plane crash investigation. And we are going to address a very important issue, mental health in aviation and the stigma surrounding it. And the question is, are our pilots, the people we entrust with our lives, able to get the healthcare they might need without fearing being let go by the airlines? And the short answer is no, not really, as we alluded to in our intro. For me, that's how it goes. You know, you go for your medical exam to keep your pilot's license current every couple of years. And it's a form that encourages you to lie. And so everybody knows you go to the preferred doctor and you lie on the forms. And in fairness, you do pass the drug test and the vision test and you bend over and touch your toes. And uh, off you go. And if you do have some issue that could cause you to fail one of these uh, medical preconditions, then what do you do? You're encouraged to hide it and not tell anybody. And there have been multiple cases of an airline pilot with a mental health problem crashing an airliner and taking everybody on board with him. And we're going to talk about those. And it's a situation that has to change. So that's what we're hoping to uh, move along by getting people to listen to this. Yes. And this episode is part one of a two-part discussion. Next episode, we'll have a very special guest, a Boeing 737 pilot, uh, with whom we'll be talking about mental health in aviation. And it's going to be such an interesting conversation. 
Yes, we're going to talk to him about some technical aspects of the 7372 since that's the other part of this. He has uh, more expertise, obviously, than me in that. So we're going to just pick everything we can out of his brain in an hour. And that will be very interesting. Yes, very looking forward to part two of this episode, I have to say. Now, a heads up, we'll be talking about mental illness, suicide, mass murder and suicidal ideation which may be difficult topics for some listeners. So please use discretion when listening and please take care. So Sandra, tell us about the details of the China Eastern Airlines Flight 5735 crash. So the China Eastern Airlines flight was going from Kuming to Guangzhou and it crashed on March 21st. Unfortunately, all 132 passengers and crew on board died. There are no survivors. This was a Boeing 737-800, the model before the MAX. And this plane is one of the safest airplanes ever built and one of the most reliable. In fact, it's the second most popular plane worldwide. And I was shocked watching the video caught by a CCTV camera from a mining company showed this plane falling out of the sky, nose diving like a rock. I have never, I don't know, I, it was shocking because I thought that that's not really how plane crashes happen. It, just imagine holding a pen and pointed steep to the floor and dropping it. That's how this plane fell out of the sky. And it seemed in the last uh, 20 seconds or so, 10 seconds before hitting the ground, it looked from the video that it had no more wings and there was nothing. It looked just like a cylinder. Yeah, that's consistent with parts and pieces being found miles away from where the crash site was, too. There's a structural speed that cannot be exceeded on any airplane lest you break something. And it seems that that's what happened, that it uh, accelerated into its nosedive and when you've gotten to the point that you break something there's not going to be any recovery it's that's the end yeah and as you mentioned at least one piece of the plane was found quite far away from the impact area about 10 kilometers so six miles away from the main wreckage area and this is an important detail we'll see as we discuss similar cases but this flight went down without an emergency radio call Pilots usually, if something happens, from what I understand from my research, pilots would actually make an emergency radio call and ask for help. And also the weather was perfectly wonderful. Yeah, so it looks like their initial descent from 30,000 down to the point they leveled off was a, a little over a minute. And I can understand if they were struggling to get control of the airplane for that minute not calling. But when they leveled off for however long a time that was before starting their descent again toward the ground, at some point in there, they should have made a radio call, yes. I can't think of anything else off the top of my head that would preclude them from calling in the emergency at some point during all of that. We're going to ask Alex, our 737 pilot, that we're going to interview for part two of this episode series about that. But I can't think of anything else. Yeah, because I guess one of the points we're trying to bring up and to discuss and to bring into more attention is just mental health in the aviation community and how a lot of the pilots and a lot of the air traffic controllers literally fear 
to admit that they might have mental health issues, even things as normal and as usual as, you know, anxiety and depression, which honestly, I think every adult person has had experienced at least once in their lifetime. There's no way. So I think that's a more important conversation. But yes, another thing is that the pilots didn't respond to calls from air traffic controllers after the plane nosedived either. Like the, the traffic controllers noticed that the plane is losing altitude really, really fast. So they tried to contact the pilots, but they never responded. Yeah, the controller is going to see. You are assigned an altitude uh, when you are flying on a uh, an instrument flight plan like they were. And if you deviate, they're going to see it right away and they're going to ask you, hey, where are you going? Why are you off your assigned altitude? So, um, yeah, the lack of response from a controller asking them what's going on and their lack of contact with the controller to declare an emergency tells me that um, the pilots in this case were, for whatever reason, you know, were either refusing or unable to, you know, say anything back. Now, there is a small piece of good news, if there can be any good news in such a tragic context, but both black boxes have been recovered. And here's an interesting detail. The black boxes are actually orange. Now, one of these black boxes is called the cockpit voice recorder, and the other one is called the flight data recorder. This one records the altitude, airspeed, direction, what the throttles are doing, and it actually records thousands of parameters eight times a second. So it's a very, very detailed tally of what happened on a plane after a crash, you know, so... The airline grounded all Boeing 737 planes after the crash just to make sure if there was some technical issue with these types of planes, they wanted to ensure that no tragedy happens before the issue is cleared. And the Americans will participate in the investigation as well as the as the aircraft is obviously American made. Pretty much uh, that's the gist of it. And Neil, I do have some questions for you. First of all, uh, what could have happened? What can cause a plane to go down like that? And second question, why are the black boxes orange? The second is a good question. I don't know. I would guess off the top of my head that rarely do you get everything right on the first design in the office. So they probably just used black material to start with. And somebody pointed out later, oh, wait, you can't see black very well, uh, so let's make them orange. That would be better. I would guess it's as simple as that. Yeah, probably. As far as what makes a 737-800 fall from the sky at 20,000 feet per minute, there's not many things. Uh, as we said, it's not a max, so it does not have the runaway trim issue that the max uh, had because it doesn't even have that system on the airplane. So that's not it. As we mentioned at the beginning, there's a possibility the pilot did it on purpose. I think it's more interesting that there was no radio response from the pilots and no radio call initiated from the pilots to the air traffic controllers. Um, there's only so many things that could cause that too. And that's the first thing they should be doing is reporting their emergency if they have one. And the fact that they did not, it makes me lean to more toward 
the possibility that this was intentional. And also, I think I heard something about this plane falling at such a speed that actually uh, it was higher than the speed of sound. So that and that explains why parts were found many miles away from the actual crash site. There's a maximum structural speed on any airplane that if you exceed that speed, you're going to break something. They probably exceeded that speed on a 737. I believe it's about 400 knots, and the speed of sound is more like 600 knots. So, yes. About the pilots, China Eastern officials have described the crew as having no health problems or faults on their records, and their past performance was very good. On this particular flight, the pilot was Mr. Hang Yongda, and the first co-pilot was Mr. Zhang Zemping. Mr. Zemping, Zhang, he was 59 years old, and he was one of China's most experienced pilots. He was selected, you know, from among thousands who applied to aviation school, and he trained in his youth on a copy of a Soviet model biplane, and later he also flew an Antonov. Mr. Zhang traveled to Seattle in 1988 to train on the Boeing 737-300. He later also learned how to fly the Boeing 767 all in all, Mr. Zhang flew four different models of aircraft, uh, at least, and accumulated over 31,000 hours of flight experience. And he was also a mentor to young uh, pilots. Mr. Yang, the captain on this flight, he was only 32 years old. He was also quite experienced, and he had a daughter who had just celebrated her first birthday, so a, a baby girl, which is so sad. and. In addition to Mr. Zhang and Mr. Yang, there was also a second co-pilot with 556 hours of experience on this flight. And the third pilot was probably just along for a ride. The term is the jump seat. So they will uh, reserve a spot for a crew member they need to move somewhere else for another flight. So that's probably why he was there. It doesn't take three people to fly 737, just two. So Neil, I have a question here. Why was the co-pilot on this flight the more experienced out of all the three pilots on board? He was the co-pilot, whereas the 32-year-old one was the captain. Is that normal? Yeah, it could be. So the 32-year-old guy would be trained to be a captain, and so they're going to put him with a more experienced co-pilot so that the co-pilot can look after what he's doing. That's a pretty normal thing. And it's more designation of who's doing what. It still takes two people to fly the airplane and the experienced guy would have been there for training purposes. So yeah, it's normal. But as far as their title goes in the airline, in the company, they're all captains, right? Or I mean, what's the, I don't, that's what I don't understand. So if one of them is a captain and the other one is co-pilot, or is that this, that title can be switched from flight to flight, depending on what is needed? Yeah. In this case, the 31,000 hour senior pilot is surely rated to be both. And the captain was probably a co-pilot first and is a recent promotion to captain. And they're just putting him with an experienced guy on his uh, on his first few trips. So yeah, swapping seats is pretty normal. Yeah, so about swapping seats, I have a funny story. When I came from Romania to the US, obviously I started my journey at the Henry Kwanda airport in Bucharest and I took a flight from there to Heathrow and then 
the longer flights from Heathrow to Dallas. And on this second flight, um, there was something wrong with my footrest and the flight attendant, one of them, saw me trying to tinker with it. It wouldn't like lift up when I was trying to put my feet up properly. I don't know, there was something wrong with it. So she came over and she said, uh, Miss, would you mind uh, if we would bump you to first class? Would you want to be moved to first class? And uh, my That's answer nice. was, yeah, it is, right? But you know what I said? I said, well, can I first see the first class? I call it... <laughs> Because you thought it was a trick. <laughs> I really, so that's the thing. I'm not used, and generally people who grew up in Eastern Europe, if somebody gives you something for free or they offer you something really cool at no extra charge. Yeah, there's got to there, be a catch. Yeah. There's got to be a catch. There's got to be a, a trick, a gimmick, something. I thought maybe the airline is going to like uh, charge my credit card. with. I, I yeah. don't know, but I was apprehensive. And I. she actually took me and she showed me the first class pod. It looked, honestly, it looked like it was from a spaceship. Absolutely amazing, gorgeous beautiful and obviously i had an amazing flight yes i accepted yeah. to be moved to first class i mean <laughs> <laughs> i don't think uh that flight attendant ever encountered anybody who, who wanted to check it to check it out first you know i'm not gonna agree to going to first class until i see what you got there <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've seen yeah. pictures of some of those first class cabins they're they're like, especially on the Trans-Pacific flights, they look like flying hotel rooms. They That one was amazing. It had uh, all kinds of gadgets and all kinds of little screens and all kinds of buttons. And uh, it had a I mean, it was a bed. It wasn't, you know, it yeah. wasn't a seat. It reclined into an actual bed. So I, I had one of the best sleeps I've ever had. Yeah. You know, I, I, I slept like a baby. Uh, it was really, really amazing. And you could also, that's the thing, you have the privacy... You have privacy in that pod. You can be in your underwear if you want to. Well, not really, you know, because a yeah. flight attendant might come and knock. But, like, the point is nobody sees you until you want to be seen. So She's going to come knock and say, are you still happy with your hotel room in the sky? Or would you like to go back to your busted footrests? <laughs> Yeah, no, honestly, I, I don't know what I was thinking. Looking back, I can't even believe that I asked to check out the first class before accepting to being moved <laughs> to first class. <laughs> before we move on to what Boeing's been up to, I want to tell our listeners that we just uploaded a really interesting premium episode about Putin's time in East Germany as a young KGB officer, uh, his work with the Stasi, his connections to terrorist groups, and Carlos the Jackal. Lots of cool stuff in there, including a doorknob poisoning, which is very KGB style. So if you're looking for something more fun, you should check out our Fraud Influencers episode, though. You'll hear about the fake Arab prince, Botox camels, and the swindler pilot who wanted to be an influencer. Well, both of these guys got caught mostly because of their social media accounts. Oh, and the Putin episode will have a part two, again, only for our premium subscribers. So guys, if you're not a premium subscriber yet, and if you want to support us and hear more of us by getting two extra exclusive premium episodes a month, please subscribe on dubiouspod.com or by clicking the link in the episode notes. We don't use Patreon, so the signing up subscription process is the easiest in the world. Three seconds, 
well, like 10, 10 seconds. That's all it takes. So if you like us, please support us this way. As we are an independent podcast, we have no teams of editors, no sound designers, no graphic designers, no researchers. So we do this on our own on nights and weekends. So dubiouspot.com, click subscribe and enjoy the premium episodes. Yeah, I'm sure our aviation audience knows all about our good buddy Theodore, as you were mentioning <laughs> Uh, Theodore has quite a name for himself in the aviation world, so we go all through Theodore's life history in that episode, and uh, yeah, so I hope Theodore's doing well. At least he didn't hurt. He didn't hurt anybody much. Yeah, and, and when he and when he did, he got the money from the from hurting the other guy. So yeah, yeah, at least he didn't exactly. That's the thing with Theodore; he didn't really, really hurt any people. So that works in his favors. So as we mentioned before, the China Airlines flight we're talking about was not a 737 MAX, the ones that were grounded after it was found out that Boeing had an undocumented trim system that caused two crashes. So we're also talking a bit about the history of Boeing here because this is relevant to this conversation. Boeing is almost as old as aviation itself. The company was founded in 1916. And really, up until the late 1990s, had a stellar record for safety. It was the merger with McDonnell Douglas that started Boeing's gradual decline. McDonnell Douglas just did not have the same respect for Boeing's tradition of safety and quality control, and corners were cut and people died. Yes, and in that context, I think the two flights uh, that everybody probably knows about are the Lion Air Flight 610 and Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302. Now, Lion Air. In 2018, this plane crashed with 189 people on board, and the plane had just taken off from Jakarta, and the weather was great. After the crash, the black boxes were found, the CVR and the FDR that we mentioned earlier. And the FDR showed that right after takeoff, there was a failure of the left-hand angle of attack indicator. Now, if you're like me, you have no idea what that is. And I didn't either. So I looked it up because I wanted to know at least one thing for sure (laughs) on this episode because Neil is a pilot, so he knows all the stuff. I wanted to know one thing. So the angle, the left-hand angle of attack indicator is a sensor that's located on either side of the plane. So each plane has two, one on the left, one on the right towards the front, and it measures the angle of the nose during the flight. And basically what it looks like, it's like a sharp blade of a knife protruding through the fuselage. And it's made of metal, yeah. And in the case of the Lion Air, as soon as this angle of attack sensor sent bad data to the aircraft system, the shaker on the captain's side started to vibrate uh, his control column, which I also call a joystick. I know it's not the correct term, is it, Neil? <laughs> no, it's, so in a fighter jet, it's like a joystick, but in a big airplane, it's, that's it, it's a column. It's a big thing sticking out of the floor with handles on both sides, so you can hold it with both hands. Yes, so a joystick. Anyway, the control column was... <laughs> this control column... Um, started to warn of an impeding stall, but that was a false warning. The plane wasn't stalling, it was flying normally. Not only did this stick shaker go on, uh, there were uh, 
master caution lights, airspeed disagree alerts, the altitude wasn't reading right. It was basically a tsunami of lights, sounds and alerts. And on top of that, something was putting very strong, repeated nose down pressure on the airplane. So, yeah, it turns out that the single, not both, angle of attack indicator was tied to the automatic pitch trim system that they did not tell people was even installed in the airplane. It's just unconscionable that on a passenger airline with 200 people potentially on it, that there is such a single point of failure that can cause a catastrophic loss of control of the airplane. There is no way that is okay and it should never have been flying. After the Lion airplane crashed, Dennis Muhlenberg, Boeing chairman and CEO, said we can't comment on the investigation, but thanks to the Wall Street Journal, we found out a lot more about the investigation as it was unfolding. Now, what Boeing did was, of course, blame the pilots and question the captain's training. But it turned out Mr. Bavie Suneja completed his training in the United States and he was a great pilot. So basically, Boeing put out a statement saying that the airplane had this erroneous MCAS activation. And actually, this is the first time anybody actually heard of this MCAS thing. Everybody said, what is an MCAS? Because in the plane's manual, MCAS was in the abbreviation section. And at this point in time, so after the Lion Air crashed, up to that moment, no pilot or expert has heard about this MCAS thing, right? That and no is, pilot. That is insane. That Absolutely is criminal. Insane. Yes. If insane. You, I mean, to have a thing on an airplane that can affect how it flies and it is not in the manual is insane. There is no excuse for that whatsoever. I mean, I'm trying to impress upon people how much you have to read to fly an airplane. It's like you have nothing to do basically during flight training except read government manuals that are thousands of pages long and read airplane manuals that are thousands of pages long and read avionics instrument manuals that are comparably as long. You are going to do some reading. So for something to not be in the manual is an outrageous oversight. Exactly. And just to clarify for everybody, this MCAS thing, what it stands for, this acronym, is Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. And it's basically just some software that's connected to the angle of attack sensor. And in the case of the Lion Air crash, the angle of attack sensor was broken. So that erroneously activated MCAS and it activated repeatedly, pushing the nose of the plane down repeatedly. Now, Boeing said that the crew did not respond in a way that they expected them to. They didn't switch the system off. The problem was that everyone was completely stunned when they found out that Boeing never told pilots that the MCAS, it's... What do you expect them to do if it's not in the manual? I mean, to get to the point of being rated to fly the airplane, they had to read the entire manual and memorize certain parts of it so that they can repeat them quickly in the airplane. So if it's not in the manual, how did you expect them to respond except 
just completely dumbfounded that this thing is happening that should not be happening. Yes, and the nerve Boeing had. That wasn't an oversight. It wasn't an accident. What Boeing did here, they tried to do damage control and kind of lie their way through it, hoping that they will come out on the other end smelling like roses, but that didn't happen. Now, the 737 MAX is the successor to the 737NG, next generation. And actually, that's what it said in the iPad training that the Indonesian pilots were given. iPad training, okay? So... (laughs) What they knew, they thought they are flying the 737-NG. They had no idea that the MCAS was on the plane. Now, at this point, starting to see that things are not going well for them, Boeing started contacted pilots' unions like Allied Pilots Association, and they brought their lobbyists to safety meetings. And actually, Captain Dan Carey, in a very inspired move, taped one of these meetings. And in this meeting, the Boeing representative is asked by the pilots, why didn't you tell pilots about the MCAS system? The answer was, well, we try not to overload the crews with information that's unnecessary. That is even more insane than not putting it in the manual. That is... It's all an airplane does is overload you with information. Yes. There are buttons and lights everywhere. And look, this wasn't a piece of information connected to the laboratory door, right? Like, oh, I mean, it it wasn't (laughs) something that's unimportant. This is something that could potentially kill everybody. So I don't think overwhelming pilots with information is a thing in this case. Trust me, it is not. There are more alerts and buzzers and alarms on the panel of an airplane than you can see in such a small place anywhere else. Like I said, the only thing an airplane is good at besides flying in a forward type direction when there's air flowing over the wings is overloading you with information. Yeah, and that's that's also what the pilots said. They said, well, uh, we would think that there would be a priority on explanations of things that could kill you. Is there something being done to make sure it doesn't happen again? And the Boeing people said, yes, uh, you know, we're doing some software changes and they'll be done really fast in six weeks, to which the pilots, rightfully so, said, well, why don't you ground the planes until you have this fix done, right? And Boeing said, well, Nobody has yet concluded that the sole cause of the crash was dysfunction of the airplane. I'm going to tie two bits together here. As we mentioned before, China has been pretty good over the years about admitting when they're wrong, when they make a mistake with a civilian airplane and it causes an accident. China has also been pretty good about grounding airplanes that they're not sure about and may have safety issues. In fact, they've done a better job than we have in the U.S. So I have a basic problem with the path that Boeing chose of basically trying to, you know, point and say, well, you know, those other countries, you know, their pilots aren't trained that well. And, you know, those other countries like Ethiopia and Indonesia, you know, they're not as good as Americans are. I mean... That's ridiculous, too. Most everybody does their pilot training in the U.S. 
because a U.S. license is good anywhere in the world. So it's not like these guys have never been to the U.S. Yeah. and flown in the U.S. They probably learned here. Yeah, for sure. The Lion Air pilot was trained in the U.S. And I don't even want to go into the uh, racist undertones that Delis Muhlenberg and Boeing uh, hinted into in, in yeah, that declaration. Yes, yeah, there's no yes. reason. There's no reason to even discuss it. It's very it, really. obvious it's, for it's... everybody. It's absolutely disgusting. And of course, Dennis Muhlenberg lies on TV repeatedly. Joining me right now is the chairman, president, and CEO of Boeing, Dennis Muhlenberg. Dennis, it's good to see you this morning. Good to see you, Maria. Thanks so much for joining us. What can you tell us in terms of what was told to the pilots and the airlines about any new equipment in that 737? We've already issued additional bulletins to our operators and pilots around the world that point them back to existing flight procedures to handle that kind of condition. The bottom line here is the 737 MAX is safe. Moving on to the Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, five months after the Lion Air crash, this plane crashes, killing all 157 passengers and crew on board. Now, the day after the crash, the Chinese, on their own, unilaterally decided to ground all Boeing 737 MAX. So they took the lead and all other countries followed. And it's always, I think, the best decision, right? And I think it's a good indication that another country is willing to step up and do something when the U.S. will not. As you mentioned, you know, when China grounded the MAX, then a lot of European countries, Australia, various others followed China. Uh, when the U.S. was determined to do nothing to try to go to bat for Boeing, basically, the fact that China is willing to step out and do the right thing when other people are not, I think, is uh, a good influence on the industry. In Ethiopia, in this particular case, they found the jack screw, which is a long, quite thick screw that operates the stabilizer trim. In any case, the jack screw was found in a full nose down position. And the investigation established that, again, it was the MCAS system that caused this plane to crash and kill everybody on board. But after the Lion Air crash, all pilots had been briefed on MCAS. So the Ethiopian Airlines pilots did everything by the book. The recordings from the cockpit show that they followed the exact procedure they were supposed to follow. And obviously the plane still crashed, so there was something wrong with the plane. This was no human error. Now, how did the MAX come to be? What happened is that in 2010, Airbus launched A320neo. And airlines are always looking at efficiency because of fuel costs. And at the time, gas and oil prices had hit a record high. So Airbus delivered this amazing new plane. Now Boeing was in a panic. So Boeing did not have a competitive plane that could take on the Neo that Airbus provided. So because they didn't have a new plane concept and it would have taken them maybe seven, eight years to make one. What they did was they decided to put more fuel efficient engines on the existing 737 model. And that's how the 737 MAX was born. And they had the advantage of taking less time to be approved by the FAA. Now, the added benefit to the airlines is that you might not need any additional pilot training because, and Neil can explain this more, is it like really expensive, right, to train pilots? Absolutely, yes. It's 
a huge cost because it has to be done every year. Recurrent training, not just initial training on each make and model you fly. So in small airplanes, uh, you just get kind of broad category ratings that say you can fly single engine or you can fly multi-engine. But as soon as you get into anything that weighs more than 12,500 pounds, you have a license for every make and model airplane you fly. It's like, imagine if you had to have a license for both a Ford and a Chevrolet to drive a car. It's the same principle. So yeah, training is expensive and not having to retrain pilots was obviously Boeing's big selling point on the MAX. Yeah, so basically if the MAX turned out to be too different from the existing 737, that would have triggered uh, red flags with the FAA and then simulator training would be required, I guess, fleetwise for all the pilots and... Well, who would have bought that plane? Right. So, yeah, it's too costly for them. So Boeing couldn't have that. So they lied. They said the MAX was a derivative. And the MCAS system was a major change. The MAX was not a derivative. Now, as the investigation into the two crashes was ongoing, in a Boeing coordination sheet about safety issues with the MCAS, the investigators found clear evidence that Boeing knew how dangerous the MCAS was. And I quote, a reaction time greater than 10 seconds found this failure to be catastrophic. So if the pilots don't respond in less than 10 seconds, you can't recover. That's it. So the issue coming of this document was not just the reaction time, it's also the term pilot training. Because... That implied that Boeing should not have only let everybody know that this is a new plane with a new system. The pilot training should have been compulsory, but they lied to reduce costs. They valued money more than people's lives. Statistically, they knew yes. at some point yeah. some planes are going to fall out of the sky because of this MCAS thing. There was another document found that they actually came across an estimate later that they predicted something like 15 fatal incidents. So I'm going to try to boil this down to layman's terms. All of these issues boil down to runaway trim. You know, that's the issue. Runaway trim is an age-old issue in airplanes. And what it comes from is all airplanes have a system similar to the MCAS that can trim the nose up or down. It's the same sort of trim that would exist on your bass boat or your ski boat that levels it out on the water. You know, you push a button forward, the nose goes down. You push a button backwards, the nose, you know, rises up. Same principle. And in an airplane, it's about keeping pressure off of the control surfaces so that you don't have to push so hard to keep it level. The issue arises that trim going one way and the autopilot pushing the other way can wind up with the airplane sort of fighting over two different systems. You know, the trim is saying, I need to go back. And the autopilot saying, no, 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 I need to push down. And they fight each other until one can't go anymore and it reaches its mechanical limit and just gives up. Like I said, this is an age-old issue in airplanes. I fought it with the last airplane I owned for months, trying to get trim issues sorted out. And that's exactly what it did. The same thing as... The max. It would trim backwards and trim backwards and trim backwards 
and the autopilot would push forward, push forward, push forward to offset it until one or the other just couldn't go anymore. And they all gave up and disconnected at the same time. And you get beep, beep, beep. And then you nose over toward the ground. And in a small airplane at 12,000 feet, that's relatively harmless because I'm not just going to fall out of the sky. I just straighten it back up manually. And in a small airplane, you can just overpower it. But you cannot overpower a 737 with hundreds of thousands of pounds of weight on the wings. That's not possible. So this was dangerous from the get-go. And to put a system on the airplane that could cause runaway trim and not tell the pilot that it is there and not tell them how to disconnect it and straighten it back out manually is just unconscionable. It, like I said, it's not like this was something that Boeing never would have thought of. As I said, it's an age-old problem with autopilots and automatic trim systems. It's been around for decades. So, of course, they knew. And this was a conspiracy, I think, from the get-go to hide an issue that they discovered during the design and just did not want mm -hmm. to tell anybody about. Yeah, they wanted the money at the cost of the lives of so many hundreds of people. And guess what? Because this got me so mad as well. In emails with Boeing from 2017, so the year before the crash, Lionair said, wouldn't it be better and safer to have some additional training? And Boeing responded, there is absolutely no reason to require a MAX simulator to begin flying the MAX. And then more emails were found where Boeing was belittling and mocking Lionair for wanting similar training for their pilots, saying it's because of their own stupidity. Oh, like this. See, that's what I'm saying. They would have never said that about pilots from Germany or France or Sweden. This is, uh, it's all, to me, it's full of ra racist undertones just because these pilots were from Indonesia and Ethiopia. And so like they would have never had this attitude uh, regarding some other pilots from other countries. Yeah, and it's ridiculous. Some of these other countries have done better in this regard than we have in this issue. I remember seeing similar things around the time of these crashes. Of course, I'm in you know, aviation groups on social media and whatnot, so I see what people say. And when the Boeing CEO says things like this, other people repeat what he said and take it at face value. And I saw the same sort of comments. People saying, oh, well, you know, those Ethiopian pilots, they throw them in those 737s with a couple of hundred hours. No, they don't. That's ridiculous. Nobody's going to get a 737 rating in, you know, a couple of hundred hours of flight time. That's ridiculous. Those Ethiopian Airlines pilots went through the same thing that everybody flying out of Dallas and Fort Worth went through at the exact same school in all likelihood. Yes, it's so insulting towards those pilots and their families and infuriating for anybody else listening and reading about these cases. It's just insane. But in a nutshell, what Boeing was saying 
as these investigations uh, into the two crashes were going was that the pilots were supposed to react in less than 10 seconds to a system they didn't know was on the plane and that had never been on any plane before in the case of the Lion Air crash. And at the time of the investigation, uh, which was unfolding on C-SPAN for all to see, Dennis Muhlenberg, Boeing CEO, was still lying to people on TV. All of our customers are flying all of their maxes daily around the world. The airplane is safe, and we're very confident in that. Yeah, it's not safe. Sorry. The whole other issue is, okay, there's a trim system, and it's automatic. And, okay, it's supposed to level the plane out. Fine. But another thing that is ridiculous in all this is that 10-second response time requirement that they found was, in their words, catastrophic if the pilot failed to respond in 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. This is another problem here. There are lots of parts and pieces on an airplane, and lots of them are going to break. The saving grace in all of them is, at the end of the day, if all the buzzers and alarms are going off and all of the buttons fail to do what they're supposed to do, you're supposed to be able to just turn it all off and hand fly the airplane. There's a big wheel, literally a big wheel, that operates the trim of the airplane right there between the two pilots. So there's no excuse for an automatic trim system to put the airplane in an unrecoverable situation either. They should be able to disconnect all of the automation and spin the wheel and straighten it back out. If they can't, it is a broken design, period. Yeah, and they knew that it is a broken design. And what I think really happened, they thought about it in a in a very cynical way. They thought, okay, so we know some planes are going to fall out of the sky because the system, because the pilots don't even know the system is on the planes. Okay, so how much will that cost us, you know, to settle in court or, you know, how much will that cost us? Well, yeah, so they probably realized at that point that, you know what, no matter how much it can cost us to settle these cases, we're going to gain more by putting these planes out there with an erroneous system that we know for sure is going to make some victims, is going to kill some people, but it was a matter of money. Well, as they said, when Dennis Mullenberg was forced to resign, he did get his $62 million severance package. So, yes. <sighs> I I I don't want to comment on that because I'm afraid I'm going to say something that can't be added in the podcast <laughs> right. anyway. <laughs> right. Before we discuss some similar cases to the China plane crash, I'd like to recommend Downfall. It's an exceptional documentary on Netflix. And I'll mention a few people and organizations who are actually doing really good things for all of us to keep us safe. And if anyone deserves a follow, it's these people. So thank you to the Allied Pilots Association at Allied Pilots. They're the pilots union. They describe themselves as the certified collective bargaining agent for all American airline pilots. But they do more than that because they played an essential role in exposing Boeing and their criminal behavior. A big thank you also to Captain Dennis Stager, Captain Joe DePitt. He's the president of the Airline Pilots Association. 
John Ostrower. He's the editor-in-chief of The Air Current, Captain Chelsea Sullenberger, a.k.a. Sully, and of course, Captain Dan Carey, who played a very important role in this investigation. And last but not least, journalist Andy Pastor. He's a former aerospace reporter at Wall Street Journal, and he doggedly dug and dug and dug and investigated until the truth came to light. And Peter DeFazio, member of Congress, a Democrat, he's at Rep. Peter DeFazio on Twitter. And Mr. DeFazio is also chair of the Committee of Transportation and Infrastructure. And he was the one who was pretty much in charge of this investigation in Congress. I don't go out of my way to praise congressmen very much, but it came across. In this case, I get the impression that he knew exactly what he was talking about because he said the same thing that I was thinking earlier in this episode when they interviewed him for the documentary. He said, a single point of failure that affects the flight characteristics of an airplane is not acceptable in that many words, just like that. And that's pretty much as simple as it is. So I get the impression that he's pretty well versed in uh, the industries he is charged with regulating, which is rare in Congress, but yeah, good job. So let's discuss some similar plane crashes to the China flight MU5735, based on what we know so far from the investigation, of course. There is the Silk Air flight 185, German Wings flight 9525, and Egypt Air flight 990. So let's talk about Silk Air Flight 185. This was an international passenger flight operated by a Boeing 737-300. And it crashed in 1997, killed all 97 passengers and seven crew on board. The investigation determined this was a pilot suicide. And there are some similarities to the China plane crash. First of all, it fell out of the sky the exact same way, nose pointing down, and in the last 30 seconds before impact, based on radar calculations, it was determined the plane was traveling faster than the speed of sound. The weather conditions were perfect, just like in the China plane crash. Again, no mayday call, no response to air traffic controllers when the plane started nose diving. In the Silk Air flight case, also the stabilizers had come off. Those parts were found miles away. So both black boxes were recovered in the case of the Silk Air flight. And it was determined that they stopped recording because somebody pressed a button on purpose to stop them from recording. So this was done intentionally. The captain had just lost over $1 million. He was also a trader. Moreover, exactly 18 years before, to the day, as he was serving in the Air Force back then, he lost four of his squadron members and good friends. So before the crash, he actually took out a life insurance policy that came into effect the exact day of the crash. Basically, what he did was asking the co-pilot to get something and then he locked the cockpit door, deactivated the black boxes recording and crashed the plane. And it's important to mention that after 9-11, all cockpit doors have been upgraded. Not even explosives can get through, but this also gives a perfect setting for someone who wants to carry out such horrible actions without being stopped. And next we have German Wings Flight 9525. It was a flight from Barcelona to Dusseldorf in Germany. 
This was on March 24th of 2015. 144 passengers and six crew crashed into the French Alps on purpose by the co-pilot named Andreas Lubitz. In this flight's case, the captain forgot to go to the bathroom before they left. And so he got up to go to the bathroom after they took off. So as soon as the captain heads to the bathroom, Lubitz locks the door in exactly the same manner as the previous flight we mentioned and programs the autopilot for 100 feet above the ground. It's honestly not likely that the passengers would even notice this after the descent is established. So I don't think they probably knew that anything was wrong until the captain starts beating literally on the door, yelling, it's me, it's me. But the door doesn't open. The air traffic controllers, of course, notice the altitude deviation and try to contact the airplane. Lubitz, of course, does not respond. There's nothing that can be done at this point because the door can't be opened. And Lubitz is determined that he's going to end his life this way. Can you imagine the horror to be the captain and to be, and also any passenger, like, can you imagine the horror of being in that plane at that point, realizing you're going to die because this one person. The length of time is something that rarely gets mentioned in these aviation incidents. At 3,500 feet per minute from 38,000, I mean, do the math. You've got 10 minutes. Most of that time, you know you are heading toward your death and there is nothing that can be done. So you've got to sit there for 10 minutes and think about what you've done. That is a pretty terrible way to go, I think. Yes, it's absolutely horrifying. And in Lubitz's case, he's not a stock trader that lost a million dollars and he's not grieving former friends from his military days. In Lubitz's case, most tragically out of all of these, his problem was that he had been to 41 different doctors to try to get help for physical symptoms of his mental health issues. The special issuance that Lubitz was given did note that he required regular examinations to evaluate his symptoms of depression, but It's not clear how often he was required to report these back to Lufthansa. At the end of the day, he is allowed to see his own doctor. And as we mentioned, he saw lots of doctors before arriving at the flight in which he decided to kill himself and everybody else on board. Dozens of doctors he went to. Yes, and moreover, in preparation for the four-month session at the Lufthansa Flight School in Arizona, Lubitz had to fill out a student pilot document required by the FAA, and he was asked on the form if you had ever been diagnosed with mental disorders of any sort, depression, anxiety. Lubitz lied. He ticked off no and left blank the space below in which he was required to detail any medical treatment he had received over the past three years or so. But the lie was actually caught, and four days after he submitted the form to the FAA, 
an aviation doctor in Germany who vets documents for the U.S. agency spotted this false statement and told the FAA. Now, lying on an FAA application can land the pilot in jail for perjury or get him permanently barred from flying. In Lubit's case, though, basically he was given a second shot by the FAA and this time he was asked to tell the truth. So he came clean, he admitted his history of depression and complied with the request for a doctor's report. So this was enough to satisfy the authorities on both sides of the Atlantic. So weeks later, he was on his way to flight school to Arizona. I think that it's important to state that major depressive disorders affect about one in six men, and at least 50% of those who recover will experience one or more recurrences. For example, just before Christmas 2014, he began visiting ophthalmologists and neurologists at the rate of three or four a week. And each time he went to a doctor, he complained that he was seeing stars, halos, flashes of light, and flying insects. And he was also suffering from light sensitivity and double vision. Now, one of the ophthalmologists said that he was full of fear. And apparently, after all these examinations, nothing wrong was found physically with his eyes. And according to some of his doctor's records, he was unable to accept the idea that it's not a physical somatic cause, it's in his head. And he broke off treatment at this point. The attorney that represented the families of passengers who were killed in this crash basically said the same thing, that there's, exact quote, there's a flaw in the system, allowing self-reporting and concealment. You fill out this BS questionnaire, you lie, and you're off to the races. That's the gist of it. It's a system that encourages people to lie because if you put yourself in Lubitz's shoes when he began his flight training, he knows that if he's honest from the get-go, he's not getting in. So he's not yeah. going any further. So what does it, you know, this is what is just insane to me is you can begin flight training in the U.S. at the same time you can drive a car when you're 16 years old. Uh, and you can complete it when you're 18. So what does an 18-year-old kid understand about the legality and the ramifications of reporting or not reporting medical issues to basically an organization of government-employed attorneys, doctors, and engineers that might affect the rest of his career? Self-reporting is not sufficient, and the FAA trying to filter people from the outset without any closer examination of their individual conditions is also not reasonable. If I just made a small digression, so regarding the FAA's approach in this pilot's case, I'm going to play the devil's advocate and put myself in FAA's shoes now, if their understanding of pilots' mental health issues and moreover overlook the fact that due to industry-wide stigma on mental illness, he lied on the official forms, they're bad and people will say they did it to please the airline employing the pilot to keep their costs down. If they had Lubitz grounded and potentially let go, people would say, well, they're bad because they fire people with mental health issues. It's a very tricky position to be in, honestly. It is. It's not simple for the Titanic to change directions. And that's basically what we're talking about when any 
government <laughs> agency has to rethink its way of doing things. Yes, yes, that's part of it. But I don't think that at the end of the day, in my opinion, there's anything that precludes being treated by a doctor and then having a job that, what are we talking about? We're talking about sitting in a chair at 8,000 feet altitude equivalent and pushing buttons and turning knobs. Yeah, but you also have 200 lives. True. That is true. In that airplane, it's not just you pushing buttons at I don't know how many thousand feet. So I'm not trying to defend the FAA, but for example, if you see things that are not there or hear voices telling you to do things and you're not, I mean... Right. We can surely add bipolar disorders to that list as well, I would say. And I think that's probably where we get to that we agree. Yes. And moreover, if there is this culture in the aviation industry of mental illness seen as something that will end careers, obviously the pilots and the air traffic controllers are never going to be honest about it, you know, because you worked your entire life to be a pilot, you work your entire life, you learned so much to be an air traffic controller. This is your career. This is your passion. This is your future. So you're not going to go and fill out that form and say, yes, I suffer from depression. Even if it's a mild form and most right. likely, let's be honest, how many of us have never, I, I've been depressed. I'm depressed more than I'm happy, to be honest. I mean, I suffer, I think, from anxiety for sure. I don't know. I haven't been diagnosed. But everybody, there's no way you can be an adult and go through life without having at least an episode of mild depression. There is no way. So pilots are human as well. This is what the FAA and the airlines need to understand. And I think the whole culture needs to change because if the pilots do not feel that it's safe to say, yes, I suffer from mental illness. Yes, I am depressed. Yes, I have anxiety. If they don't feel safe enough to say that and to disclose that, then none of us are safe, you know, and if they're afraid that if they say that they're going to lose their jobs, how is that constructive in any way? It's not. It's not. And the intro we did for this episode mm -hmm. was not a joke. There are literally those questions on the form. When you begin flight training, you go and fill out a checklist for the doctor. And one of them is, have you ever been dizzy? <laughs> and if you're smart, you lie. And another one is, have you ever had anxiety? I mean, with the time I filled out that form or shortly thereafter, I have a I have a wife, a female dog, a 12-year-old daughter, and a female cat. And all of them are designed, custom designed, to cause me the maximum amount of grief in any given day. Have I ever had anxiety? Are you kidding me? And I check no. And yes, thank you very much, doctor. Give me my paper so I can go fly. That's what people yeah, do. Yeah, and a female co-host also. <laughs> and, a and a female co-host of a podcast that is not even a native English speaker. So oh my God, it's like editing these. See? So first is, of all, see? first of all, it's so sexist. The female, yes, I understand. But like, so don't blame the dog <laughs> and the wife and the, no, we're all, dep like, we all have anxiety, but... That was a good, like, that was a really good uh, point that you made. There's yes. no way, you know, there's no way. Have you ever been dizzy? Yes, I'm dizzy if I stand up really fast and I haven't eaten. If I stand up really fast on an empty stomach, yes, I'm going to get a little dizzy. Yes, everybody experienced that. There's no way any living adult on this earth has not been dizzy.
It's like they expect everybody who walks into a doctor's office looking for a piece of paper to have their first flying lesson is the magazine image of an astronaut from 1962 or something. It's just not real. Yeah, and look, people might wonder, because that was one of the questions that crossed my mind as well. 41 doctors. I mean, at least these are just the ophthalmologists. These were not doctors that were on his insurance, I guess, things. So the company didn't know about them. So he was seeing these doctors on the side. And my question was, why didn't any of these doctors notify the airline because when you have a pilot that sees flying insects that are not there, I mean, that's a red flag. Yeah. And also the fact that he insists that he has vision issues when he doesn't. And you know he doesn't because you're a specialist, you're a doctor. So obviously it's a mental issue. Why not notify the company? So we're talking villains, you know, in Dubious, that's a thing. We talk villains, we talk people who cause bad things. So in this case, it's really hard to be honest, and I don't want to blame the doctors, but this guy was obviously not well mentally, so he can't be entirely blamed. That's the problem. It's an illness. Okay, so... Yes, and I mean, that's a good point. The division thing, even I gave them a pass on that before. It's a, it's a system that encourages people to lie but they do give you a real vision test and you do have to pass the real vision test and the real color blindness yeah. test and that's a that's a good restriction i mean there are red lights and there are green lights and there are white lights and you have to be able to see them next to each other and decide whether you're going to hit the ground too early or not so you know you can't be colorblind and fly an airplane it's just one of those things it is what it is it has to be. Well, I mean, in the so defense... that's legit. But so you got a guy that says, I can't see right. You know, I can't, I, I have trouble seeing and something is wrong with my eyes. And it's not, he's imagining it, but he is completely neurotic about this to the point that he sees dozens of doctors. Yeah. I've, I also find it disturbing that not one out of the 41 bothered to make the call and say, hey, I'm going to keep an eye on this guy. He's he's pretty high strung over this vision thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if this wasn't maybe a cry for help on his side, going to all these 41 doctors that we know of, because who knows, maybe he saw more doctors, but maybe this was a cry for help. Maybe he hoped that one of them would actually contact the airlines. Maybe this was his way of drawing the alarm that something is really wrong with him, because I mean, what does a doctor need more than hearing you say, I see insects that are not there? Like, I see insects and they're not there. I, yeah. I, I mean, when you see halos and stars and insects and things that are not there, th I think any doctor in that situation should at least consider contacting the employer. I mean, if the guy would have been probably like, I don't know, if he would have worked in a supermarket, then I guess, okay, maybe seeing insects would not be such a major thing, I guess, but he's flying planes with many, many people inside. So... Yeah, and well, if those weren't indication enough, and the week before this plane crashed at Lubitz's <sighs> hands, he was searching for producing carbon monoxide on the mm. internet. He was search for, searching for drinking gasoline mm. and searching for which poison kills without pain on March the 18th. Mm. So, the, the check was in the mail at this point. 
on March the 18th, one of his doctors wrote a sick leave note for him, effective for four days, indicating that Lubitz suffered from a persistent vision disorder with a thus far unknown origin. Hmm. Yeah. It- and in March, and two days later, he was planning how he was going to bring this airplane down and kill himself and everybody else on board. Yeah, this is really disturbing, and it's so hard to talk about. And on the day before returning to work, he scribbled Decision Sunday, along with the flight code BCN for Barcelona on a scrap of notebook paper that was later retrieved from the trash in his apartment. And below that heading, Lubitz listed several options. Find the inner will to work and continue to live. Deal with stress and sleeplessness, or let myself go. So on the day of the crash, it was actually Lubitz's second flight between those two cities. They had taken the reverse route before, and he rehearsed, basically, programming the autopilot for 100 feet of altitude and seeing what would happen when he put that in the altitude pre-select. Nobody raised any alarms and no beeps beeped and nobody said anything. So that was probably a trial run on his part to see if the system would allow him to program that low of an altitude into the autopilot's altitude pre-select. Then on the second flight that day between those cities, he did it for real. Yeah. Or maybe who knows? What if he wanted to to crash the plane on that first flight, but maybe he didn't get the chance to lock the door and the pilot maybe walked back too soon and didn't notice that the altitude was lower. Maybe they were distracted. Maybe the pilot walked back and they were just talking. So Lubitz had the chance to set everything back to normal cruising altitude or whatever. But yeah, nobody took notice of that. Nobody raised any red flags. So this is a very tragic incident, and that's why we think it's important to discuss mental illness in aviation, because it's not the only case, and it's something that can pretty much still happen, even though we have some rules in place now where two people must be in the cockpit at the same time. Let's not forget people become friends, people uh, let their guard down, you want to use the laboratory, you need to go potty, you want to go get a drink from the flight attendant, I don't know, you want to stretch your legs. Mistakes can still happen, I think, and nobody follows all the rules entirely all the time. No, and the flip side of this argument is also valid. I'm sure that A professional airline pilot hearing this is going to think that's all fine and good, but it says in my union contract that I can go to my own doctor and I'm going to keep going to my own doctor. And that's as it should be. So there's nothing wrong with that. And if it were not the case, then we know how that would go because we've already talked about how Boeing was willing to crash people out of the sky for money. And if pilots were not allowed to go to their own doctors and required to go to company doctors, I give it six months tops before we hear a story about how XYZ company is sending the pilots who make too much money that they want to get rid of to the doctor that they take care of. So yes, it's completely reasonable yes, that makes pilots' sense. contracts allow I them to see their own doctor. What the crux of this episode is really mental illness in the aviation industry and the stigma surrounding it. What is worrying me personally as a passenger, potential passenger, because I will be flying again soon, 
if the pilots and the co-pilots and if the crew and if the air traffic controllers feel that they cannot be honest and say that they have depression or anxiety, that is not safe for anybody. They need to not be afraid of losing their jobs or of companies, airlines trying to find ways to ground them because I don't think the airlines are legally allowed to fire them, but they can find ways of making them feel like they have a big, what's the word in English, Neil? A big... A target on their back. Yes, to make them feel like they have a big target on their back. So all of these things, I think, boil down to it needs to be above board because the current situation encourages the pilot to lie and it encourages the airline after they have invested in a pilot to ignore and those two don't go well yes together. and my question is what do we do because in this case we have the faa who was more than accommodating to lubitz given his mental health and they gave him a second chance even if he lied on the form and he ended up crashing the airplane intentionally and murdering 150 people so not only ending his own life and That is when I find it now hard to argue against some of the rules and regulations the FAA has in place for pilots with mental health issues because it's such a delicate and complex problem. How how do we fix this? What, What would be a good solution? I think we should start with just being truthful. Everybody should be truthful and start from there. I don't know, like, how do we, how do we make it better for the pilots and the crew and the air traffic controllers? Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, this culture of stigma within the aviation community is not constructive and cannot have any good outcome if the pilots are afraid to get treatment as they think they're going to face repercussions at work. That's in nobody's interest. We are we are not safe, any of us who fly. No, and I think there's a precedent. The one that comes to mind is... After all of the cases of brain injuries from football players, the contract between NFL players and the NFL was amended to compensate for their injuries. I think a similar thing would go a long way. And if not that, a thing such as preferential treatment for pilots with medical issues and training jobs, simulator jobs, stuff like that, which they can still do without a medical that is required to fly. That would be a big help. Um, Mm -hmm. Something along those lines would go a long way. As I said, the main thing is this stuff needs to be above board and not hidden and then lied about, firstly. And secondly, there's got to be some sort of safety net for people who would otherwise be honest and just say, hey, you know, this is what I'm struggling with and not have to worry about, oh, well, you know, if I tell the company that I've been prescribed a psychiatric medication, then what? Then I'm bankrupt. I'm going to be thrown out on the street. My wife's going to leave me. I'm going to be stuck with car payments I can't pay and house payments I can't pay and credit card bills I can't pay and no job because what can a guy do who's been flying airplanes for 30 years? What are you going to go do? You know, you're not going to go to law school when you're 50 years old because you just got kicked out on the street 
uh, by an airline. That's it. That's what you do. So it's all got to come above board and there's got to be a way for people to report these things and not have to worry about losing their entire life. Yes, and their careers and potentially their families. Yes, you make a very good point. And also, uh, in Lubitz's case, he was prescribed very, very strong medication, and he was taking it, and it seemed to work, and we don't know if he actually stopped before the crash. But the thing is, in a nutshell, you are right. What needs to happen is there needs to be a truthfulness and an openness, at least about discussing these issues in the aviation community. Because look, pilots are human. Pilots have issues too, like the rest of us. Pilots are not robots. And look, in the case of Egypt Air Flight 990, the co-pilot deliberately crashed the plane as an act of revenge because he had been reprimanded. And the chief of the Egypt Air's Boeing 767 pilot group happened to be on the plane he was piloting that day. So he crashed the plane as an act of revenge. Obviously, most likely he was not mentally well either. But what I'm trying to say is that we need to understand and the aviation industry needs to understand that pilots, air traffic controllers, uh, flight crew, these people are also human. And if we are allowed, the rest of us, to have a bad day, to be depressed, if we are allowed to have anxiety, these people cannot not experience these types of things. It's impossible. They are human. That's the point. Yes, and mentioning the controllers is a good part. Everything we're talking about with pilots also applies to air traffic controllers. And look, let's be completely honest. As a pilot, the air traffic controller has the more important job and the more high-stress job by far. I mean, I'm just doing what he tells me to do. I trust the controller. So, you know, the controller is juggling 10 airplanes or 12 airplanes at the same time, whereas I just got to deal with one. So everything we're talking about in regard to pilots also applies to air traffic controllers. They have to go through the same restrictions. They have to go through a psychiatric evaluation before they are even allowed to attend the school. So, yes, it all has to change in some way. It can't continue. This, we've already seen news stories in the past few years. They come along every couple of months. Oh, there's a shortage of pilots, and there's a shortage of air traffic controllers. I mean, another thing that I think should be clarified for people who hear this that are unfamiliar, outside of being president, vice president, general, colonel, something like that in the military, U.S. congressman, U.S. senator, a couple of steps below that is air traffic controller on the pay scale. And it's a job that does not require you to go to law school or go to medical school. Like you can just be, you know, Joe somebody with a four-year degree from a state university like me and go be an air traffic controller and make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year if you do well at it. So... You know, these are not undesirable jobs. It's not like somebody washed out of everything else and wound up being an air traffic controller. No, and controller. for good reason. Honestly, I will never complain that air traffic controllers are paid well, because they should be. Because imagine going to work every day and knowing that the smallest mistake that you might make while watching that screen might result in the death of hundreds of people. I don't know, that kind of pressure 
it's it's a lot it's a lot and that kind of attention can you imagine how attentive you must be every second so i have a friend who's an air traffic controller and i do know that she does not work from monday to friday or stuff like that no because you have to be attentive watch watching that screen every single second yeah no mistakes ever and you know at my home airport this guy he saved me once i know for sure I was coming into my home airport at night. Yeah, doing nothing wrong. Just It's usually pretty quiet. It's a small airport. And I was coming into land, and there was another airplane with a student and an instructor in it, and they were asking permission to fly an approach into the wrong end of the runway. You know, we were landing the other way because of the wind direction, and they wanted to fly an approach in the wrong way. And... And being gracious, the air traffic controller in the tower let them do it and said, okay, but you got to break it off a mile short because I got I got a guy coming in to land. They say, okay, fine. And so they did, and they did not do as they were told. And they were coming at me head on. And as I was coming in to land at night, so I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna see them except for their lights. He sorted it out and got them to turn away before they hit me. And so at least one case I can think of where an air traffic controller probably stopped somebody from hitting me in midair that I can think of. And I can't think of any examples in my 10 years where an air traffic controller has made a dangerous mistake that put me in danger. And that controller at my home airport that saved me at least once from people who tried to hit me. Uh, died of a massive heart attack in the tower at work. You know, he was taking a break. He went downstairs to get a cup of coffee, and he never came back upstairs. And That's really sad. I don't. It's it is, and he was not that old. He was a young guy. You know, early fifties. Uh, went to his funeral, obviously, because and talked to his wife. Told her, like, look, you know, your husband saved me at least once. And so he was a good guy. And I don't I don't know if he had untreated medical issues. He also flew to he was not just a controller. Most controllers fly to. And uh, yeah, it's it's a high stress job. I was going to say most likely that heart attack. We're not doctors. We don't know exactly. But being an air flight controller and knowing that the smallest mistake you make might yes. end up with hundreds of people or people dead doesn't even matter how many that and can't that's another be thing that, that can't be not stressful and you know obviously didn't help keep his heart healthier you know no and that's another thing i was going to get to that you know heart medications are also excluded from the list if you go get your physical exam as a pilot and they tell you that you have heart-related issues and start having to take blood pressure pills, well, that's it. So did Brian decide that, you know what, I'm just going to ignore the cardiologist and not take those blood pressure pills? I don't know. But if he didn't, somebody else did. I guarantee you somebody else did. Yeah, most likely. So we're, we're going back to the same situation, the same problem within the aviation community, within the aviation industry. This fear of even taking yes. the medication you're prescribed, 
because then you're not allowed to fly or your career ends and then you get in debt and then you lose your family. And then like, see, those are the thoughts that would go through anybody's mind if you are a yes. traffic controller or a pilot. So this is really sad. And hopefully, hopefully something will be done and at least a truthful, honest conversation can be started. And on part two of this two-part series on aviation disasters and mental health in the aviation professional community, we are going to have as a guest a 737 pilot. As usual, I want to recommend the book. And no, we have no deal and no monetary incentive to do this. We only talk about books we like. So because we've been talking so much about plane crashes, we want to leave you guys on a positive note. Today's book is about flight, but it's about space flight. It's called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. It is a great read, and it's written by Commander Chris Hadfield. He's one of the best-known astronauts in the world. He needs no introduction. He's the guy who broke into the space station with a Swiss army knife. He got rid of a live snake while piloting a plane and been temporarily blinded while clinging to the exterior of an orbiting spacecraft. So, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. Really cool read. And very heartfelt too. It has a warm human touch to it. It's not all about space, the ISS modules, capsules, ignition processes, and so on. It's very well written, very entertaining, and easy to read. And don't forget to subscribe to get our exclusive premium episodes. You can do that on dubiouspod.com or by clicking the link in the episode notes. Also, if you like us, a five stars rating and maybe even a review if you have a moment would really be helpful. We are at dubiouspod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we have really cool episode graphics there and also sound bites from our premium episodes if you want to check those out. Do you know what the scariest thing I've ever seen in an airplane is? No. Okay, there's a video of two guys flying a small airplane going to land. This the snake thing reminded me. And they're coming into land, look like they're about three or 500 feet up. And so they're low and slow, and a gigantic tarantula crawls across the ceiling of the airplane and then, of course, falls on the floor. So it's running around on the floor while they have to land. If I if that happens to me, we are going to die. I'm just going to say cuz <laughs> I'm taking my feet off the pedals and I'm pulling the power and we're going to get what we get. And when they peel us off of the runway, I'm sure the spider will slowly walk away unharmed. <laughs> <laughs> I think the best thing to do in cases like that is just obviously sit still. I would probably be, I'm not so afraid of tarantulas. I, I don't think I would be. Uh, I would be more afraid of a snake. No, I don't have a problem actually. with the snake. I could deal with the snake. The spider has far too many legs and teeth on top of that many legs. So, no. Well, I never took the teeth into no consideration. Spiders. Okay, no spiders. No so. spiders. <laughs> 